This episode is brought to you by IT Revolution, whose mission is to help technology leaders succeed through publishing and events. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. For this first inaugural episode of The Ideal Cast, I'm so delighted that I have two people who have influenced me and inspired me in very different ways. I met Dr. Mick Kirsten in 2016, and he has become one of my favorite people to talk to. He got his PhD in software engineering and architecture, and more than anyone else, his views on how architecture shapes how teams of engineers work together to create value for our customers was informed by his decades of work in this space. He's the author of the amazing book, Project to Product, where he describes the flow framework and how all work fits into one of four categories, features, defects, risks, or debts. So much of the five ideals in the Unicorn Project was shaped by that book, as well as in the bi-weekly calls that I've had with him for the last four years. Peter Moore is someone who I met only last year, but immediately struck me as someone who the DevOps enterprise community needs to know better. He has spent decades in a very unique position, working with both business leaders and technology leaders. Some of this was enabled by something very unusual about him, because he is the brother of the famous Dr. Joffrey Moore, author of the book Crossing the Chasm and Zone to Win. Zone to Win is a book that appears prominently in the Unicorn Project, highlighting the challenges that every modern organizations face, which is balancing core versus context. Core are the core competencies of the organization that customers value that create lasting durable business advantage, while context is everything else. Without further ado, let's go into this amazing conversation. Thanks for having me, Gene. I'm Mick Kirsten, the CEO and founder of Tastop and the author of Project to Project, as you said. And over the last year since the book's launch, I've been studying the flow data, basically the artifacts and information and knowledge flowing through software value streams of very large organizations to try to better understand where the bottlenecks are, what the systemic problems are, where these misalignments that we see between the software architecture, the customer, the business happen. And so you can basically say that for the past couple of years, I've been studying closely how far organizations are from the five ideals. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that today and, and looking at how we can get them closer. Thank you, Mick. Peter, how about you? And maybe can you also make sure you describe how your background uh, is in technology? Gene, thanks very much for being part of this. I'm looking forward to the conversation that you and Mick and I are going to have today. As I mentioned before, my background is not technology. It's really on the business side, primarily. Back in the early 80s, I worked at the New York Stock Exchange for most of that decade with our chairman and CEO and spent a lot of time with the CEOs of our listed companies and saw firsthand what a challenge they faced in trying to balance the resource and budget allocations against the businesses they had and the new businesses they wanted to do. And so part of what we'll talk about later on Zone to Win is how that framework helps them do that. But recently, over the last six years, I've really sort of shifted my focus toward the intersection between technology and business within an organization. And early on in the in the about 12 years ago, I started working with the CIO, Rob Carter, at FedEx and observed firsthand this adversarial relationship and thought, <laughs> you know, why does this exist and what can we do? And a lot of the things in the Unicorn Project now brought that home to me. I wish I'd had it back then. It would have been more helpful. So, But I think that the key thing for, for 
for you know the, the businesses today, if they cannot harness digital technology as a competitive advantage, they really aren't going to be very impactful in the marketplace. So a lot of what I think we're going to talk about today speaks directly to that. And the Unicorn Project did a wonderful job of amplifying that, you know, particularly from the red shirts point of view. Peter is referring to red shirts as in Star Trek. These are the people in the engine room as a metaphor for people who are doing development in their daily work, as opposed to the bridge crew, who are the executives portrayed in both the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project. So before we jump into the first topic, uh, let me first set the stage by describing the five ideals, which are the things that Eric talks about in the Unicorn Project. Uh, we'll talk about three of them in this episode, but here is the entire list. The first ideal is locality and simplicity. The second ideal is focus, flow, and joy. The third ideal is improvement of daily work. The fourth ideal is psychological safety. And the fifth ideal is customer focus. So before we jump into the first ideal, uh, which I know both of you have so many interesting thoughts on, uh, let's first talk about why you think these topics covered uh, in the book are so important. Whether you call it DevOps or technology modernization or digital disruption, I think we all have a deep conviction that the topics covered in this book are some of the most important business challenges of this era. Uh, Mick, you and I are both fans of the work of Dr. Carlotta Perez, and she describes how the age of software and data may set the stage that should herald in this uh, you know, decades of economic prosperity. The last time that we've seen anything uh, of that magnitude was likely the 50 years of economic prosperity following World War II. Uh, Mick, tell us about that and why you think it's so important. The thing that Dr. Paris introduces in her work is this notion of these long cycles, the technological revolutions. You know, economists might call them contractive waves, but the way they exactly they're sliced and diced is up for debate, but her model dissects each one into three distinct phases. And so for a lot of us on the business side, a lot of us on the technology side, it may feel like we've been dealing with technological change for our entire careers. And it's, so the question becomes, is, is this normal? Is it going to continue? Will we Will things settle down? Will there be a new JavaScript or other technology framework that comes out every two weeks from now on? Uh, these are questions that actually Dr. Perez's research and work and models answer. Because what she shows us is that we're in the middle of another one of these massive waves. Over the last 250 years, there have been five. They started with the Industrial Revolution, then the age of steam and railways, then the age of steel and heavy engineering, the age of oil mass production, and now the age of software and data and digital. So... Where she puts us is right in the middle of this age. The way these ages break out is into three different periods. So we have a, a period of creative dest destruction that we're, we're quite familiar with. This is, she calls this the installation period. This is where some new means of production becomes cheap and scalable, and all of this financial capital pours in in order to make a, hmm. a 10x return or better. So this is the, the point in Detroit where over a century ago, there were over 300 car startups in that city alone. So you had all of this innovation because mass production was in its installation period. Then from that installation period, the new giants arise, the new, whether it's the new railroad barons, it's the new masters of scale. You now have these companies, the Fords and the GMs and the others, who become the new incumbents. They become so good at getting means of production that they actually end up controlling and, and driving and directing a significant part of the world economy. That's called the turning point. Once we get through the turning point, we get into the deployment period where there's technology diffusion. Other companies learn how to produce cars, how to produce widgets, how to produce with quality at scale. 
And in this deployment period, that's when we get to the wealth generation. Uh, that's when we get to that, that golden period after the war. Um, and that's what Dr. Carlotta Perez predicts will happen to technology once we get through that turning point. But to do that, we actually need that diffusion. We need to learn what these companies become so good at building technology have learned over the past few decades, the, the age of software uh, started in, in about the 70s. So what have they learned in, with production at scale that we need to apply to our companies? And this is where I think the unicorn project is this incredible narrative. Similar to how uh, Goldratt's the goal defined the narrative for the turning point of the last revolution, I think the unicorn project will do the same for this one. Maybe something that we both marvel at uh, is that this deployment period, one of the things that Dr. Perez talks about is that this is when we take all of the learnings of um, where the revolution was created. In our case, it is a Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and then deploy them not just in the software industry, but across every industry vertical. And Dr. Perez talks about how this is a period of wealth redistribution. Uh, in the last revolution, the economic prosperity wasn't caused by the car startups. It was uh, cars in combination with the interstate highway systems combined with the revolution of supply chains that drove you know this 50-year period of you know unprecedented economic prosperity um and, and so this is what you see happening in across all industry verticals as well is that right Mick? yeah exactly and because when we think of these technological ecosystems it's it's exactly as you, you said gene where you've got the highway systems you've got verticals that are being transformed um through manufacturing and through scaling those, the, the generation of those technologies, eventually, you know, leading to lean thinking and so on. So this is exactly what Dr. Perez predicts is going to happen now, is that we're going to move from this period where mastering software at scale is in the hands of a small number of companies, the, you know, the nine tech giants in the in U.S. and China, to actually being something that generates wealth and business results and customer results and results for citizens everywhere across the economy and across government sectors as well. So we're not there yet, but I think the amazing thing is that we're, we're starting to see what can get us there. So the question becomes how, how can we get there as quickly as we can? Because the golden ages don't come unless that concentration of the know-how actually does get diffused across every industry and federal segment. Yeah, and, and by the way, just to make this uh, very concrete, and this is why the DevOps Enterprise community is so interesting to me, because I do believe that this is the forefront of where all the learning the tech giants um, are now being incorporated across every industry vertical, uh, regardless of company size, regardless of longevity, uh, showing how that they can better survive and win in the marketplace. Uh, so, uh, so, Peter, I think one of the things that we've talked about is – uh, the notion of digital disruption, you know, it's on every board agenda these days. And you know, what uh, I loved when you brought up your horror and shock about the recent McKinsey study <laughs> uh, about digital disruption. Uh, tell us about that study and why you think it's so important and urgent. Yeah, and in fact, it's part of a blog I wrote in October that uh, was called, you know, In the Digital World, Actually, Digital Transformation is an Oxymoron. And the fact of the matter is, it's not about <laughs> it's not about digital transformation. It's about business transformation, which is enabled by, and in many cases driven by, all these disruptive digital technologies. And what McKinsey did was they did a study in 2018, and they documented that around the globe there was approximately 1.3 trillion dollars spent on some version of, of digital transformation, 70 percent of which 
did not achieve its desired goals, which means $900 million did not get much of a return. Gene here again. This was actually an error. Peter meant to say $900 billion, which didn't get much of a return. But what it, but what it says, and again, it, it speaks to some of the things that Mick was just talking about, and that is we have to educate you know, people across all disciplines and all industries and all different categories that technology in and of itself, okay, is an enabler. It's not, it, it's not, it, it, we're not, yes, we're technology companies, but understanding what the technology brings to the organization. And I think where McKinsey was trying to start at least is to say, if you're just going to chase the next bright, shiny object, that's not going to work. So you have to say, what is the business outcome that you want to achieve? So if the business outcome is to change your business model or to modernize your operating model or to significantly optimize your infrastructure model, great. Then deploy digital technology in service to that. Rather than just looking at it in this sort of big generic way saying, I'm running, you know, I'll tell you one fun story that I love. There's a company here in Santa Monica where I live called Edmunds.com. They're the online car company. You may be familiar with them. The CEO came into the CIO at one point in time and said, we have to do blockchain. (laughs) (laughs) And the CIO goes, why? Well, we just have to do it. I read this article and it's really going to be cool. So instead of just diving into it, what they did was very cool. They did a blockchain awareness month and the whole company spent the whole month, they did a hackathon, they had experts in, they did studies, and, and they, the whole company took a look at this, and at the end of four weeks, they got together and they said, yes, it's interesting, but not for us now, because there was no compelling business reason to do it. And I think it's a great example of just don't get, you know, sort of distracted by all this new stuff, but understand where you want to deploy it and why. Uh, that's great, Peter. You told me something uh, last year uh, before your October blog post <laughs> that, that really <laughs> caught my attention, which was hey, the, the sort of injustice that happens when you don't have this collegial, mutually respectful relationship between technology and business. And one of them involved uh, FedEx and how, how that impl- impacted uh, the workforce. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. What, when I did the work at FedEx, a lot of what uh, the work there surrounded around something called the corporate load, which was twice a year. <laughs> all the upgrades and all the new technologies. It was the pig through the Python. And they had one in January and one in August. And they had this very elaborate process by which projects lined up to get into the queue, to get into the, the, the corporate load each year. And then they'd go forward. Well, the, the people that work in that, that culture is very, very clever. And they, they would put more into the system than the system could handle. And so <laughs> for three years, the three previous years that I when I started working with them, the QA people in QA and testing never had Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Day off, <laughs> not the day before, the day after, the day. And it just I think it speaks to this issue that we need to create mutual respect in a system that says, "Look, we have an outcome we want to achieve. If we try to game the system, somebody's going to suffer. And why should it be QA and testing? Because you." Or, you know, you changed your requirements halfway down through the project and we had to go back and redo some work and all that stuff. But it was an example of where, and I think ultimately it was to the detriment of FedEx, not to the benefit. (laughs) I think they've now sorted it out, not the least of which is they've had a lot of grumpy people who who missed Christmas and Thanksgiving. But 
I think it is. It's a good example of some of the points you made in 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 the uh, Unicorn Project. It also began the start of their version of the rebellion, and we, we can talk about that later on. But one of the things I loved about the Unicorn Project was all the meetings at the Dockside Bar and how people will, to, through their own instincts, say this isn't the right way to do this. Right, and specifically uh, use these words. Uh, you know, the goal, our, the mission is really to escape the past. Well, right? and, and you have a great example of like organizations that cannot seem to escape their past. Yeah. No, the, the biggest challenge for, for IT is they they are they have been the legacy mindset in every company is IT is a cost center support function, and so they're gonna you know put them down in the basement, make sure nothing breaks, everything's fine, compliant, but for God's sakes, don't bring them up to the bridge and ship steer the ship. And so if IT accepts that, and if they talk about themselves as a cost center support function, then they're not going to get it. But to be a meaningful and very much needed strategic partner for the business, they have to free their future from the pull of their past. And they do that by changing the way they engage with all their internal constituents and business partners, and by the way, the, the external customers and everybody out there as well. So a lot of the work we do now is turning IT from an inward-facing organization to an outward-facing organization, and and a lot of some of the really good CIOs, um, you know, like Cynthia Stoddard at Adobe and people like that, they really have figured this out, and the benefits are huge. And I think that and the inability to escape our past, right? That's not just a technology issue. You had a really great example of uh, a very famous business leader who couldn't escape the pull of yep, the past. Yep. No, what you're talking about is is Steve Ballmer, who, when he became the CEO of Microsoft in 2000, the Microsoft stock was trading at $40 a share. When he <laughs> stepped down in 2014, the stock was trading at $40 a share. During the entire during the entire 14 year tenure as CEO of Microsoft, the stock never traded over $40 a share. And you're going, how is that possible? Because they generated free cash flow like there was no tomorrow. But to the point, and zone to, this is where really zone to win comes into play. When Satya Nadella took over in 2014, the very first thing he did was to send an email to all employees of Microsoft across the world and say, from this day forward, we're cloud first, mobile first. He pivoted the company using the zone to win framework. The stock is trading at $186 a share today. And uh, by many measures, the world's most valuable company. Yes, exactly. That is so great. So in the Unicorn Project, uh, the first ideal was really intended as a way to describe to what extent teams are able to independently develop, test, and deploy value to customers independently without being shackled to five, ten, or even scores of other teams. Uh, and that really represents uh, the non-ideal case when – in order to get something done, teams have to communicate, coordinate, prioritize, deconflict, synchronize, uh, marshal with everybody else uh, when they may not even know who we are. So in the Phoenix Project, uh, my favorite metric was uh, the bus factor, uh, which is you know, how many people need to be hit by a bus in order for the project, service, or organization to be in grave jeopardy. And in the Phoenix Project, uh, the bus factor was one because of Brent. So if Brent got hit by a bus, we wouldn't be able to fix an outage. Uh, we wouldn't be able to complete any complex work uh, because the entire organization was solely reliant upon the knowledge and expertise that was only in Brent's head. And so obviously we want a bus factor much larger than one. We want it to be reside within a team or multiple teams so that we can have the ability to be resilient and have capacity. 
So in the Unicorn Project, yeah, I think the corresponding metric is the lunch factor. To get any piece of important work done, how many people do we need to take out the lunch? Is it the Amazon ideal of the two pizza team where every team is able to independently create value and to do what customers want? Or is it the not ideal case where if we want to get something done, we need to take out the entire building out to lunch? Uh, so Mick, so much of this was informed by our years of biweekly conversations. Can you describe why you think the first ideal is so important? <laughs> Absolutely. And so in the many conversations I've had since then, Gene, the, the first ideal is the one that I am most worried uh, with, with leaders simply just not understanding. So it is such a critical thing to us. I think, it's, I think the reason it's so critical and so profound is because it ties together two key things that are necessary to become a, a, a software innovator. Uh, to, to really you know, thrive through digital disruption. And that's the fact that you need to have your software architecture, your, your basically your digital assets aligned to your organizational structure and aligned to your business, as Peter was saying. In the end, this is about the alignment of business and technology. And in every organization that you know that we visit, we see this misalignment, right? You see, you, and the reason this idea is so popular and so so quick for people to talk about as soon as they read the Unicorn Project is because you see constant symptoms of it within organizations. Uh, and the, the symptoms of it come from this kind of misalignment. So a high lunch factor, where, again, to make any meaningful change for the business. Remember, everyone's just trying to deliver value to the business. If you need to take out 15 people to lunch, you know, you've blown either your slush fund or <laughs> at least your patience by the end of that journey. And in the meantime, you've delivered nothing to the business. And it's that, that horrendous experience that Maxine has as she's trying to you know, start being productive on, on what she's doing for Parts Unlimited uh, in the book, in the Unicorn Project, is exactly what so many people are, are living day to day. So this one to me is it's just visceral that our organizations have gotten stuck in a place where this doesn't exist. There is no locality. There's no simplicity. And leadership needs to understand how to get there. So Peter just mentioned IT as a cost center. You have no chance of getting to this ideal or anywhere near it if you treat IT as a cost center. Because the only way to align at the larger scales that, that get, that get where this is actually difficult and that get interesting, the only way to align your software architecture and your team structures, your, your org chart to the business is around the customer and is around how business value flows to your customer. And if you're treating your delivery as a set of projects related to cost centers tracked with um, project <laughs> plans and Gantt charts, you cannot be further disconnected from customer value. And you could not have your teams, your contributors, uh, further disconnected from customer value. We look at the flip side where the product portfolio is defined. Every, every single person in the organization, every specialist, every developer, every, every tester, as Peter was just talking about, they have the same customer goal of innovation. They will actually structure the software architecture in a way that supports innovation for the business. So there, there are many things that got us here. One of them, I think, actually is IT as a cost center. Another one is enterprise architectures that try to make this beautiful, <laughs> elegant visio diagram of how software should function in the organization. Uh, where were customers on those diagrams, right? Where were the customer <laughs> value streams? I've never, never quite seen them. You know, you've got these silos and assets and, um, and many layers, but they're not aligned around the customer experience and around innovation around business. So I think, I hope Peter actually touches on this at some point soon, but we've got approaches of breaking through this, right? In terms of how I've personally 
uh, approach this because I think every organization goes through innovative dilemmas and changing markets and, and disruption and so on is actually through through zone management, right? Through carving out different zones of your business, each of which is aligned to a customer and a market uh, and where every single person within that zone and delivering the products within that zone is actually aligned to, to delivering value to that. But right now, this first ideal, if, again, if, if you're a business leader, a technology leader, or some combination of both, uh, if your organization doesn't understand the value of this, you've got a profound problem. And by the way, maybe to get concrete, in the Unicorn Project, I mean, the first third of the book is about, as you said, Mick, uh, the plight of Maxine, this incredible engineer <laughs> yep. at the height of her powers, uh, you know, at the height of her profession, is tossed into the Phoenix Project and cannot get anything done, can't get a build done, can't get the right tests, can't run tests, can't deploy <laughs> code to customers. Uh, and, and so in my mind, it is like... Um, Tom Hanks in Castaway, where despite all her skills and gifts, uh, she can get nothing done without the help of others, right? To a ridiculous effect. Um, and there was a, a point in uh, the review process, Mick, that you said, as they're trying to do this deployment of the Phoenix Project, uh, you said it is like the worst case architecture. You couldn't design a worse system to enable people to get work done. That wasn't an exaggeration to you, Mick. And so can you confirm that and tell us why you think that's so important? No, it, it wasn't an exaggeration because when you've... Now, the thing that concerns me is that it's not the only one like this I've seen. But again, this is why <laughs> this is the, the great and the scary thing with Unicorn Project is how much of it will resonate with, with its audience because the symptoms that you see on the opposites of these five ideals are, are just everywhere. But again, the point of the five ideals is that at least they give you a, a vision and a path for identifying this and moving in, in a better direction. But just to reflect on, on that point, Gene, that you get innovation when people can deliver value independently and where there's a decoupling between them and let's say someone providing them some data that they need to create some new screens or some new, you know, some new mobile experience and so on. And so, what happens with software if we don't understand or appreciate the dynamics of software, like the fact that when developers take shortcuts to get a feature out the door because everyone cares about time to market, those shortcuts then cause technical debt to accumulate. That accumulates, you've now got dependencies between parts of the code that are all completely tangled. Uh, I think the Unicorn Project does an amazing job of actually saying how key a part of those dependencies the data is. Because the data flows access to the latest customer's data, unlike the experience I had a couple of weeks ago where you know, the large financial institution, it would take them seven days to get some batch processes to finish to get at the right kind of data um, for this one team to, to innovate on. So you've got this, this incredible coupling of multiple systems, of course, throw into that the legacy systems and gets more and more visceral in the Unicorn Project to the point where it's, you know, I'm almost getting sick. But... but <laughs> That coupling means that to make a change, to add value, to you know, to create um, some of those new widgets and that new functionality is almost impossible, and takes someone with the emotional and intellectual fortitude of Maxine to get through. And I, I don't know how many Maxines we can all count in our organizations, right? So if you don't get to the locality and simplicity where a normal employee, a new employee, a new hire who could have gone to Facebook is actually able to deliver value, again, you're not going to make it. No, that's amazing, right? Uh, like every new engineer at Facebook does a deploy within their first week. Uh, at Etsy, uh, engineers deploy code to production 
even if it's just their picture on the first day, board members deployed, their dogs deployed, right? <laughs> it just that shows to what extent they push that, you know, uh, as, as uh, an important value to the company. So, Peter, you know, uh, one of the things that so much excited to me about our first conversation was that you had your own stories that uh, showed how much this resonated with your own experience. Can you tell us about how you stumbled upon this and how common it is for technologists to have created or, or co-created these software architectures where it's nearly impossible for anybody to get anything done? Yeah, no, I, I, and listening to, to Mick's description, I mean, it really fits this one example that I'll give you. It's I've spent uh, most of uh 2018 working with a large software vendor we went into a little bit of 2019 and it was a business applications group there were 140 people in the group the first statistic that i'll give you blew me away maybe you this isn't surprising you and mick of the 140 <laughs> people on the team 100 were eccentric contractors <laughs> i don't know about you i'm not a technology expert that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me anyway the issue, though, that goes back to what Mick was talking about, the whole alignment thing and creating the need to create independence within, within teams and then align those teams with businesses. What we discovered when we looked at the structure of this business applications development team, they were all structured around um, different vendors. So there was, a, there was a Salesforce stack, there was a NetSuite stack, there was a bunch of other pieces like that, um, and we wanted to get rid of that. So, um, you know, we, we just wanted to find a way to, to, to take those vertical stacks and create six cross-functional teams, which we did. And we lined those teams up with the different key internal partners and uh, constituents. So we had a team that supported revenue and marketing. We had a team that supported product, cloud, et cetera. And then what we did was, instead of going in the typical meeting that IT normally has with a, either an internal or a client or even an external customer is, they've got their little Excel spreadsheet and they've got their little red, green, and yellow you know, uh, project uh, assessment things, and they worry about where they are on, on, the, on the project timeline and everything else, and can this project move faster, et cetera. We didn't do any of that. We sat down with the chief revenue officer and her team, and we said, what is currently making it difficult for you and your team to achieve your desired business outcomes? Totally open-ended question. And what we discovered very quickly, because we asked that question was, if you were in sales at this company and you wanted to get a 360-degree view of, the, of how much what the customer was doing, you had to open up five separate applications. And that immediately triggered a program called One Click, One View. And within nine months, we had collapsed the five down to one. And not only did we get a much better outcome, but we turned adversaries in the sales team into advocates for us. So it's, I think, a great example of you need to understand where your internal business partner and ultimately the customer is coming from and respond to that. And, and uh, Peter, just to land this point very concretely, uh, you, you said that it was you needed to get away from. You had this need to get to six uh, teams and capabilities. What was so bad about not having six teams and capabilities and having these teams really focused around the technology stacks? Well, two things. One, from a development point of view, all you had was people that only knew how to do one sort of, if you will, vendor. So the Salesforce people could do Salesforce, but they couldn't do any other. They couldn't do NetSuite, or they couldn't do Workday. But the other part of it was, is that when you went into a conversation, 
you went into it with that sort of, if you will, what I'll call, I guess the way I'd phrase it is vendor mentality, as opposed to starting with what the business or the customer was looking for. And I think that's what got us sort of, I think got them sort of stuck in these individual vertical silos and didn't give them the ability to think more broadly about a potential solution, like how do we go from five applications to see a total customer view down to one? You would not have, that question wouldn't even have come up if we'd stayed in the old structure. I I love this, right? I mean, uh, the notion is in the ideal, right? If you need to make uh, a deliver capability, you can do it in one place, right? Uh, Exactly. uh, Versus uh, having to bring in 40 different people and touch it in 40 different places. (laughs) Now you have to communicate, coordinate, signal, prioritize, marshal, right? Yeah. Bringing project managers, right? Uh, I think this leads to horrendous outcomes. And I think uh, this was definitely felt uh, in this example, right, Peter? Yes. Uh, and Mick, uh, you make this pretty audacious claim that it is this absence of locality and simplicity that is one of the reasons why you know large digital disruption initiatives fail. Uh, c- can you talk a little bit more about that and substantiate that audacious claim? Absolutely. So these these large transformations and the ones I've, I've studied most closely, they tend not to be constrained on on budget. So there's a ton of money. <laughs> Some of them are. Uh, a lot of them want to result in an IT, the IT budgets have gotten to the point where the goal of the transformation can be to reduce that that bloat in IT. And there's, there's as we know, um, and from what Peter said earlier, there is a, a ton of bloat in IT, but there's a lot of money being invested, a lot of skill, a lot of uh, talent being invested in these, in, these, in these transformations. So the question is, is if you have not, def- if you're not investing it in, in, into a, basically a model, a structure, that can take that money and produce business results, what are you investing it in? <laughs> right. And what it's right. invested in is what in project to product, I call it local optimization of the, of the value stream, but basically these very elaborate structures of turning those dollars into project initiatives and budgets and outsourcing efforts, as you just alluded to, Peter. Uh, but you're basically pouring money, pouring very large sums of money, which is your job if you're supporting and, and leading it one of these transformations, uh, into the structure that can't turn it into value. And that's why those, those facts which you get are of nearly a trillion dollars going up in flames are so problematic. So when I digested you know, the, the data that we saw around this, some of the cases that we saw in industry, uh, what's happening is that money is being poured in. It's a lot of efforts going into either improving the architecture or improving some part of the delivery process or training everyone in the company, including, uh, well, you know, including the trainers on Agile. And, and it's not producing results. And it's because the right structure, the right investment structure within the company of having customer-centric product value streams for which you measure value in a customer, customer-centric way don't exist. So that, that locality and simplicity, the thing I find so beautiful about it is it works at every layer of the organization, right? So right down to Maxine, the individual contributor when slacking, she can add value in a reasonable amount of time, right? She realizes when she had locality and simplicity, she was a hundred or a thousand times more productive than the, her first experiences working on the Phoenix project. So then uh, it actually works at the team level which is the rebellion builds and the rebellion is trying to you know, basically blast through um, this quagmire of tech debt to create something where they actually do have the locality um, and, 
um, and simplicity and show the company a better way. And it works at the organization level because if you have not structured these investment buckets as these as customer-centric product value streams where you can put dollars in and get customer value <laughs> out, get business value out, again, you're just throwing good money after bad and you're investing blindly without any disciplined or sensible metrics to determine whether you're getting something for your customers, for your shareholders, for your business, and for your employees at the end of the day. So I think that the lack of this is of locality and simplicity is why digital transformations fail. Uh, that's awesome. In fact, before we go on to the next topic, I, mean, I also want to land this point with uh, Peter to confirm, right? When you put money in, we should have higher expectations, right? You put $1 in, you shouldn't get like 85 cents out, right? right? It shouldn't even be $2, right? We want $5 out, right? That We want to create a value creation mechanism where you know, we can, uh, you know, there'll be winners and losers, but uh, the winners will be 5x. I mean, does that resonate with you, Peter? Oh, yeah. But but the other wonderful thing is, I, as I listen to Mick, there's, there's a story that I want to share with you again, back to Edmunds.com. This CIO has now moved on to Amazon named Phil Potloff was just extraordinary. When, he's, when he went to Edmunds about six years ago, he inherited a ERP software license from Oracle that the maintenance fee was $2 million a year. Okay. So he and his team went in and looked at this, and they said, at best, we're getting, five, to your point about ROI, Gene, we're getting $500,000 worth of value. So they went back to Oracle and said, we <laughs> need to renegotiate this contract. And Oracle, of course, have said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. So what would normally happen, would normally ha and Mick, correct me if I'm wrong, and you're, what would normally happen to the CIO would go, well, we just have to absolutely wait it out. Well, no, what, this, what, this, what, what Phil did, he went to the CEO, he said, I need $500,000. And the CEO says, what for? He says, let's go back to now. Let's talk about lo locality and simplicity. I want to pay our very best developers on their own time over and above what we're paying for them to do their day job. And we'll build our own ERP system. And so the CEO says, well, how long is that going to take? And he goes, I really don't know. So <laughs> it could take a year. Four months later, they released the first version of their ERP system with 80% of what they needed. And they went back to Oracle and said, buzz off. <laughs> and I think it's a perfect story of if you recognize, that if you free up that talent, if you give that talent the capability of doing what they do, not only do you not have to be at, at the beck and call of the predator, Oracle or whoever, but you really set the, the tempo and the stage to do the kind of work that, you know, Maxie wants to do. That's what she wanted to do. Hello, everyone. You've been listening to the inaugural episode of The Ideal Cast with me, Gene Kim. This podcast is brought to you by the same people who put on the DevOps Enterprise Summit, the conference for leaders who are transforming technology in the world's largest and most complex organizations, and the same people who publish many of the books that we all know and love, such as Project to Product, Team Topologies, Making Work Visible, the upcoming Agile Conversations, and many more, which includes all the books I've co-authored, such as The Phoenix Project, The Unix Project, Accelerate, and more. And given the topics and ideas explored in this episode, I'd highly recommend Project to Product by our incredible guest today, Dr. McKirsten. He's the foremost expert in value stream networks and works with massive companies untangling tremendous complexity. If you're going to learn from anyone, make sure it's him. For updates on IT Revolution publishing and events, 
follow them on Twitter at ITRevBooks and ITRevDoes. This podcast is brought to you by the 2020 DevOps Enterprise Summit London, which will be a virtual conference due to the global pandemic upending almost all aspects of our daily lives. For seven years, we've created the best learning experience for technology leaders, whether it's from listening to experience reports from large complex organizations, talks from the experts we need, or through the peer interactions that you'll only find at DevOps Enterprise. For my entire career, I've benefited so much from conferences, whether it was to learn what I needed to learn or meet who I needed to meet. In fact, I've met almost all my co-authors at conferences. At IT Revolution, our goal is to create the best learning event possible for technology leaders. So the DevOps Enterprise mission goes on. We will have the same great programming with the same great talks. And we are working furiously to create the most engaging and effective learning environment for you so you can learn what you need to learn and meet who you need to meet in order for you to achieve your own goals. You'll be signing up for three days of learning, which will be so much more than just watching talks in front of a computer screen. We will feature the best ways that we found to encourage the best interactions, including lean coffee, birds of feather sessions, virtual happy hours, and much more. To register, go to events.itrevolution.com. I love that because it really is about, it matches so many stories coming out of the DevOps Enterprise Summit where uh, they are creating greatness within their organizations and getting away from uh, vendors whose business models are actually jeopardizing They're predatory. <laughs> their own. They're predatory. <laughs> I think. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, one phrase was that uh, if we got to get away from dangerous vendors. Yeah, right. Uh, so the, the first ideal uh, around locale and simplicity was really meant to highlight that, uh, you know, it's not enough to move box around on the org chart. We need a software architecture that's congruent to it, that's almost isomorphic to it, that allows teams to be able to work independently. And uh, one of the things Mike, I learned from you is that, you know, that's actually the story behind the famous Jeff Bezos memo in 2004 when he said, you know, the only way that teams uh, can talk to each other through networked APIs to really force that uh, separation between teams so they can work independently. Um, so, which leads us to the second ideal uh, of focus, flow, and joy. And, and for me, uh, this was so much influenced by me rediscovering the joy of coding. Um, that revelation came from learning the closure programming language. It's a Lisp that runs on the JVM, uh, and it's a functional programming language. And it was without a doubt one of the most difficult things I've ever learned. I probably studied for 60 hours reading books, watching videos uh, before I even got to write my first program. It was so difficult for me because as a functional programming language, everything's immutable. You're not allowed to change variables. Uh, you can only make new ones. Uh, and it really showed me how much simpler programs can be when we eliminate state, uh, which is a source of so much complexity. And I also learned how much you can build these days with so little and how productive you can be if you really create these simplicity in your architectures and your systems. And that's what really led to this notion of focus, flow, and joy. It's, uh, to me, the ideal is when we're spending our best energies focused on solving the business problem and we're having fun uh, solving the problem that customers need us to solve. And, and the not ideal case, uh, we're just spent, uh, we're just stuck in the muck, trying to get other people to do what we need them to do, pestering them, or we're mired in uh, solving problems that are so far removed from the actual problems we need to solve, like having to figure out how to make correct YAML configuration files. And uh, Mick, you and I have a, a common love of uh, the work of Dr. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, uh, who wrote this incredible book, Flow, The State of uh, Optimal Experience. Uh, and he describes how 
flow is a state where we lose track of time when we're working, maybe even lose a sense of self, that, that transcendental experience when we are truly loving what we do. Um, uh, Mick, do you want to talk about uh, flow and how important that's to you? You said it's not an exaggeration to say that uh, you spent decades trying to uh, help engineers achieve a state of flow. Yes. So that's, and I think that, that, that journey for me continues and whether it's again, individuals, teams, or organizations, but that let's, let's talk about the individual level because one thing I, I, I'm convinced that leaders do not understand today is how bad the current state is. So this is again, why I think the the depth to which unicorn project goes at walking you through on this, you know, uh, lean thinking style Gemba walk, this walk where you're actually seeing the assembly line for the first time, because a lot of business leaders have not seen how software is built, right? It's it's a harder thing to see. Uh, it's a bunch of editors on, on developer screens, but the conversations are there, and it truly is about creativity and conversation. So the first thing is we need to admit and understand that what we're managing here uh, and what, what our staff are doing is a creative process, right? And a creative process, and this is what Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi talks about, a creative process requires a state of flow. When you're in a state of flow, you're not 1.5 times more productive. You could be five times more productive or 20 times more productive. And the longer you can sustain it, uh, the more value you can deliver to your, to your customers, to your organization, to your stakeholders. So as I started working on larger and larger scale software, I started realizing that as, as things got larger and more complex, uh, I would get into a flow state less and less. And this is, mm. this is over 20 years ago. And so I started, I started missing that flow state where I'd be writing code you know, a, a, as quickly as I could be you know, writing a blog post or, um, or, or an email message. But whereas when, you, when you're writing code, and Gene, you know this feeling, it's, it's just this incredible feeling of, of creating something that wasn't there before, solving puzzles. Uh, and then every time something gets in your way, it's, it's just so annoying, <laughs> um, especially when you spend the next two hours trying to deal with, as you said, a YAML configuration file or, or some other point of friction that, that gets in the way of your flow. So, And you're spending all your time on Google or Stack Overflow just uh, trying to solve something that you don't even care about. Right? Exactly. <laughs> trying to make an error message go away. Exactly. And, and it's all that friction and distraction that gets in our way. And to me, when I was... you. Know, spending the kind of uh, stereotypical 80 hours a week coding, I, I started realizing that the things, I started getting RSI, repetitive stress injury in my, in my arms. And it got to the point where uh, where my boss was telling me if I didn't you know, take paid, uh, paid time off, um, it would end my career because he'd seen it happen twice to other people at Xerox Park. So I got really freaked out um, and I started looking at all the things that were friction in my day-to-day -day work. Uh, and all the things that were flow. And I did this by writing some software that instrumented my, my computer and my development environment. Uh, and then I started finding these, these sources of friction. And it's exactly what, what you relate in, in the Unicorn Project gene. And it's, uh, Peter, I've heard you talk about this. It's, it's when we're switching between different requests because the load of work that's coming, say from the business onto the IT people, is causing so much thrashing. And then not only are you thrashing between the work that you're doing day to day, but you're actually thrashing between different projects because you're probably assigned to 16 different projects because your IT has been treated as a cost center for the last uh, couple decades. So the, the amount, if you look at the ratio, and by the way, 
both my uni- the university I, I did my PhD at, the University of British Columbia, um, other students of Gail Murphy's, I was a student of Gail Murphy's, they've continued studying flow. Um, so we actually study it on our developers. There's a research study being done right now, which is how often there's and for how long they're in a state of flow. They all get Apple watches, so they're happy because it's, it's how we can actually measure their heart rate and things <laughs> because these things are actually evident to that level in your work. So the, the reality out there today is we could have our developers in, in basically a, such a minuscule time of flow that if we could just increase flow by 1%, by 5%, again, just get a, a little bit of that journey that Maxine had, but at the organization level, the, the productivity benefits are, are immense. And we're right now in a, in a context where some companies have figured this out, right? You've got tech giants out there, you've got tech startups, you've got uh, you know, a pretty recent crop of unicorns whose developers do get to stay in the flow. They have the right kind of parachutes and their testing, and their approaches to testing, they can, and approaches to shipping software, that they can just be in the flow of their work. The, just one last factoid, because we, we just got this data recently, um, we've been studying flow data uh, at TaskTop that we get from our customers, and you start seeing this, that a 1% increase in, in flow efficiency, one of the metrics in the flow framework, well, that's approximately a 10% reduction in time to market. So <laughs> the the focus, flow, and joy, they might might sound soft, but if you can increase them by one or two points across the organization, you'll pull way ahead of your competition. And if you had any sense for how bad it is, these very expensive, often developers, they're being paid how little time they spend building value and how much time they spend frustrated with technical debt and legacy and you know some of the story that Peter just told, uh, I, I think we'd have a lot of people crying listening to this podcast. So, <laughs> and, and, and Mick, you said something to me very recently um, that I, I forgot came from uh, Cheeks at Mahali's work, which is about the economic cost of trying to regain flow. Uh, can you say? Can you remind us what that is? Right. So, the, okay. So this is this is the really big part of the problem is that it takes a fair amount of work and distraction-free work to get into the flow, and once you break it, you have to redo all of that again. So every time something breaks your flow, there's, it's very expensive to regain that flow. So if you've got things breaking your flow, on average, every 12 minutes, you never will have gotten to the state of flow that day, that entire workday. And then keep in mind, you're 10 times more productive when you are. So this tells you this, you know, I don't think we have the exact right data on this. We've been trying to collect it as much as we can, but, but anecdotally, I can tell you that when I see individuals and a team working with flow on a code base, we're talking two, three, four orders of magnitude more productivity than, than when you're living the story of the unicorn project. And, and by the way, that totally resonates with me. Um, you know, I've kept a daily work log for almost 11 years. And uh, you know, so as a spreadsheet, uh, is the day, what I'm working on, what the word count before and after are, and uh, you know, what I did. And I found that I cannot hit my word count objectives uh, if I don't, uh, if I'm not in a specific Starbucks, um, and if it's not in one sitting, <laughs> and so you know, I learned that you know, I need three to five hours um, of uninterrupted time, and uh, this is when you have to play games with yourself, saying I'm not going to let myself have lunch or even go to the bathroom until I hit the word count target, because uh, you know uh, once you you know get out of that seat, right, your ability to hit that word count target is basically you know has gone down to zero. Uh, so uh, Peter, you know uh, this all sounds 
so soft, right? Focus, flow, and joy, right? I can imagine a business person saying, you know, our job is not, we don't pay people so they can be happy. Right? <laughs> we, we pay them to do work. And yet you've come to the opposite conclusion. So can you motivate that and prove to us that, you know, this is not about just, uh, this is not out of charity or, uh, you know, uh, funding someone's hobby, there is a mercenary business advantage for creating these conditions. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, there's a lot of very interesting uh, statistics that um, I put together again for a year-end blog in December around the fact that if your employees aren't happy, your customers aren't happy. So I think the way we make the business argument to the business side is it's one thing to have happy employees, but by the way, if they're unhappy, it's not just an unhappy employee. You, un you more than likely have an unhappy customer which impacts the <laughs> line. And some of the statistics I found pretty pretty stunning. Uh, Gallup has got a study that says that over 66% of American workers are not fully engaged in their work. The conference board said that over 53% of Americans are currently unhappy at work. And Kansas State University did a study that showed that 100 unhappy employees cost companies $390,000 per year in lost productivity. So those are just three of a bunch of examples. And I think the key thing is, and you guys have a better feel for this because you've done the coding. I've never done it. But our oldest son, is a he's, he's a software developer, and he's just gone through an interesting transition from being an individual developer to now running a team of nine. And his primary job right now, Gene, you'll be happy to know because I had him read the book, is to create, <laughs> is literally to create focus, flow, and joy. And what he explained to me, but I had to learn this a long time ago with him because I would call him up and he'd be in the middle of writing code and he would be upset that I called him on the phone. I said, well, <laughs> your father wanted to. He said, no, dad, you don't get it. When I'm doing code, I cannot be interrupted. So we need to somehow, and maybe Mick, I don't know, you've seen where they, I don't understand why people who don't do this job don't realize you can't just walk into a developer's office in the middle of writing code and say, I have a question. Because the minute you do that, is just as Mick said, you can't, you can't. It's not turning on and turning off like a light switch. And so I think part of what this is is educating them to what this job really means. I mean, my the way I the relevance I draw to it or the comparison, I started off in the advertising business. So you would you can't interrupt a copywriter or an art director when they're making advertising, okay? Because <laughs> you're going to get junk. You're going to get junk. And so part of what, what I want to try to do is to try to, and I say to business people all the time, before you even email that person, text that person, knock on their door, whatever you're doing, understand if they're doing something for you, you're going to make it much harder for them to do it if you knock on that door. Gene here again. Both Peter and Mick make a very compelling case here for developer flow, which enables someone to be orders of magnitude more productive than when they're not in a state of flow. Of course, we must always balance individual productivity with team productivity. In other words, not allowing developers to talk to each other just because we don't want anyone to be interrupted is certainly not what we want. Individual productivity and team productivity should not be mutually exclusive. So I think Peter just brings up a really interesting point. Because we know how to manage talent, how to manage talents in and, and advertising and writing and digital publishing and so on. So I think the problem is that where our managers or you know, many of today's managers are actually managing to an operating model that made sense for mass production, which is again, one age ago, and does not make sense for creative work, which is why again, understanding this second ideal, if you don't understand 
why this ideal is so important to the hundreds of millions or billions that you're spending on technology, you're managing your technology to the wrong model and your chances are you're throwing good money after bad. Because if you've got developers who are not in the flow and you think you need to hire more developers, you're wrong. You actually need to reduce the tech debt so that you can, an investment developers produces that you know, better than an 85%, 85 cent outcome, as, as you mentioned. <laughs> the, dollar, the dollar in, get 85 cents yeah, out. Right. But, but that's, that is what's happening. And then, of course, are, are, are then frustrated. And again, you're, you're, you've, you're just operating to the wrong model. But now, of course, we need to assume that no one wants that. Everyone wants the organization to win. Even Sarah, I think, wanted the organization to win in Unicorn Project. So what is it that's going wrong? Because developers know they need to stay in the flow. Their first line managers know they need to stay in the flow. And then we've got this massive mismatch between the way the business operates and throws things over the fence to these cost centers or other broken structures that's actually constantly ripping people out of their flow as they go from, you know, from ticket to ticket to request to request to meeting to meeting. So again, understanding why this is not just, just some soft uh, uh, new age psychology, but completely fundamental to your success as a software innovator, I think it's pretty important. And, and, and Peter, you said something very encouraging to me in the last stages of the development of the book. And, and Peter, I had shared with you that you know, we had sort of doubled down on making the audience of the Unicorn Project the developer, right? And I had shared with you my, my fears and concerns that maybe in doing that, it's not going to ever be read by engineering leaders, and it certainly won't be read by business leaders. But you said something very uh, poignant and uh, reassuring to me. Peter, can you share that um, and maybe substantiate why you think this uh, topic is so important for every business leader? Yeah, I, th I think the, 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 the education part of it is, and I, and I, I predicated by saying, you, know, you wrote this for red shirts, I'm not a red shirt, okay? But what I do- and by red shirt, this is like the in Star Trek. Red shirts are the people <laughs> in the engine room who go down the way party and get killed by you know all sorts of things: Altrian bloodworms, Klingon blasters, etc. Right? <laughs> the red shirts, right? As opposed to the red shirt. But, but but I mean, most business executives grew up understanding the functional disciplines of their organization. They understood manufacturing. They understood finance. They understood marketing. They understood sales for the most part. Okay, most of them had. A, at best, a cursory understanding of technology in its early stages. So go back to the days of mainframes and all that stuff, you know, and passing, you know, cards through windows to people locked in, you know, in rooms stuff. They had no idea what it was about. By the way, today, unless they put some time in on it, they're equally uninformed about a lot of this digital technology, what it is, what it takes to produce it, deliver it, develop it, get a good return on it, and who are the people that do it. And so part of what I think we have to do is to say to them, you don't have to understand how to write the code, but you have to understand what it takes for that code to be done properly so you get the outcome. So if, you, if you're a bank and you want your customer to have a mobile application, it isn't going to happen without code, period. Not going to happen, okay? So don't talk about somebody running around with a cute little thing in their hand going, oh, yes, I can do all these things. No, you can't because you have to have the code to make it work. So, and when I get into these conversations with business people, now, if they're over 50, there's a lot of furrowed brows, okay? Because they're not digital. I mean, if they're over 40, they're not digital native in some cases. But forgetting that, they're all, I think, the common denominator is you want a business outcome. This technology can get you that business outcome. You need to understand those people 
those people are the only people you have in your organization that can do it. Okay. HR can't do this for you. <laughs> can't do this for you. Okay. They can't. Not that they don't want to, they just don't have the skill set. But the other problem now, and I don't know whether and I'd love to, to hear mixed thoughts on this. The biggest challenge I hear now, even from ones who don't have good understanding, but the ones who do have, they can't find the talent. And I think the other, I mean, so not only is it important for you, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're really lost. If you know what you're looking for, you've got a big uphill challenge because there's, you know, there's more demand than there is talent at the moment. And so I think that a lot of what this work that the Unicorn Project is talking about is making it easy for them to understand what that talent should be, how that talent really should be engaged and operate, and, and ultimately what the benefit is if you let them do that as opposed to opposing it. Because and, and Peter, you had made this astonishing claim that you said every CEO needs to know that those redshirt developers may be the most valuable people no in your enterprise. No question about it. No question about it. I mean, the thing that's, I mean, if you look at someone like uh, Elon Musk, I, mean, I, did work, I did a lot of work with the CIO at SpaceX. You don't have to convince him that technology, he doesn't even think about SpaceX as a, as a, as a space exploration company. He thinks about them as a technology company. And the best example I can give you is when NASA sends a rocket into orbit, they have 450 people in the control room monitoring the flight. When SpaceX sends a rocket into orbit, they have 40 in the control room on their way to two. Because he knows that technology is doing much more of the work. Same thing. He's got the only car company in existence that's never had a recall. Never had a recall. Because it, if something's wrong, he sends out a software update and it fixes itself. So it, those are the kinds of stories that we have to start getting people who aren't as close to technology as a SpaceX or a Tesla to understand. And by the way, there's this great article that just came out in the Nikkei Times. Uh, a bunch of engineers did a teardown of the Tesla Model 3, uh, including engineers from Toyota, and they uh, marveled at the fact that there's only one component that's driving all of the auto drive capabilities. And <laughs> the Toyota <laughs> engineer said, we can't do this. This is six years ahead <laughs> of uh, where we are. Right. I mean, it just shows that this is a core competency that can't be delegated to suppliers. Exactly. Uh, Mick, I sent that to you over the weekend. Exactly. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> Oh, okay, let's do a little. Oh, Mick, do you want to respond to I that? I do, or, I uh, do, because you know, I think we we could have, and I hope we have a lot of listeners who who wish they understood code better, right? Who wish they were, you know, they they had more conversations with Elon Musk or people who had had conversations with Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. um, but we have a lot of people who've grown up around traditional businesses who feel the pressure to innovate, and you know, I think Peter, you mentioned, you know, like should they should they learn how to write code? Well, you know, it, it's a when I get asked by a senior business leader, should I take a coding course? My answer is actually, you know, no, there's, there's, there's a lot more you can do with that time. So if you've got extra time, do it. It's fun. It's interesting. But any day I will recommend just reading the unicorn project to get a sense for what software delivery is like, rather than yep. learning one tiny fragment of it, which is yep. to write some basic Swift on your iPad, which, which is fun to do with your children, admittedly, but it's, it's not really going to give you a perspective for what your staff are dealing with. Because in the end, just having that perspective for your staff um, is what's going to allow you to do the thing that you need to do, which is to make conditions for that talent that you have to thrive, right? There's talent there. Um, you know you need more talent. As you are mentioning, Peter, there's, there's 
definitely going to continue to be uh, competition for technical roles for developers and, and for others, right? As we move more into AI, there's going to be more, more competition from machine learning, data pipelines, data modeling, so on, right? It's just going to continue. So really, again, just back to that ideal, if you from an HR and a talent management and a recruiting perspective, if, if you don't prioritize that focus, flow, and joy, you won't be creating the conditions for that talent to thrive. You won't yep. have people out there at recruiting fair saying, no, you know, even though we seem like a stodgy business, we're doing this amazing innovation here and, and showing someone a, a demo and convincing them to come work for your company. So I think, again, it's that appreciation by leadership right through to HR um, of the fact that it's, it's that focus, flow, and joy that, that allows technologists to thrive. Because in the end, when you get enough of them in a room, as, as they got assembled in a rebellion, they'll do great work. So as a leader, it's it's your job to create the conditions that allow them to do that. And get yep. that is so fascinating. And in fact, yeah, uh, to that uh, a leader, right? I mean, I think the advice would be, um, yes, use all your influence and your authority to guide and remove obstacles to enable, right? And I think that's yep. what really. Uh, in the book Maggie did was uh, she understood how critical technology was to the achievement of the largest aspirations of the organization, and then did everything to eliminate obstacles and make it possible for uh, the rebellion and the uh, uh, the project, the unicorn project, to do everything that it was actually able to do. Uh, that is awesome. So we talked about the first ideal of locality and simplicity, the second ideal of focus, flow, and joy. We're going to skip the third ideal of improvement of daily work and the fourth ideal of psychological safety so that we can talk about uh, the fifth ideal of customer focus. And uh, Mick, you were there for this aha moment. Uh, you and I were in Detroit, Michigan, uh, because we were going to spend the day hanging out with Chris O'Malley, the CEO of the famously resurgent mainframe vendor CompuWare. And you know, for a year and a half, we were dazzled by what he had to teach the DevOps Enterprise community about how to get business leadership on board, how to get conserved, stodgy CFOs on board. And uh, I remember walking to the CompuWare building in the morning, looking at the agenda and, and suddenly feeling embarrassed. Uh, I remember uh, saying, Mick, I'm so sorry. We had such high hopes for this day, uh, but I'm so sorry. It looks like the first thing on our agenda is a data center tour. And I remember feeling so bad because I, I didn't know what we were going to learn by you know seeing their halon extinguishers. And yet that was the source of one of the biggest professional aha moments I've had in my career because you walk into the data center and it's basically empty, right? You see two Z mainframes and then you see tens of thousands of square feet of empty data center space. You see uh, these green outlines like in a murder scene of where the server racks used to be. And in the middle of each one of those... Uh, uh, outlines is a tombstone that showed what business process and application used to reside there and how much money uh, they save each year by getting rid of it. And over the many weeks it took to the process this, uh, I think this was just one of the most stunning uh, visual examples of um, reallocation of context into core. Uh, so by getting rid of $8 million of things that customers didn't care about, things like ERP systems, uh, like uh, desktop support systems and, and uh, uh, on-premise email. Uh, you know, these are things that are important but did not create lasting, durable business advantage. These are things that customers actually don't care about. They were able to reallocate that $8 million and put it into R&D, creating things that customers do care about. Um, so I think this is just so great because of fifth ideal is really about to what extent can we take a look at the work that we're doing and really unflinchingly and courageously ask, is this creating value for the customer? Is this creating lasting durable business advantage? Uh, meaning is it core 
or is it context? And if it's context, to have the courage to be able to say, is this work that we should be doing at all? And I think uh, the the book Zone to Win, more than any other, really show how important of a problem this is uh, and this really faced by every modern enterprise. So, Peter, can you teach us about Zone to Win, the Three Horizons, and tell us why it's important and uh, what tools we can use to think about this problem? I said previously, how does a CEO balance funding the businesses they have and the functions and activities that they carry out and have enough other resources that they can materially fund a new business that could scale? To 10, our, our threshold is 10% or greater of their current revenues. And part of what they do, and the thing that I love most about you know, the, the picture you have of the CompuWare and your description of the data center, the, at, at its core is, is in the pro, there are four zones. There's a productivity zone, a performance zone, an incubation zone, and a transformation zone. And I'll, get, I'll briefly get to each one in a minute. But the productivity zone is where all the systems of record reside, ERP system, CRM, et cetera. And what Mr. O'Malley and his team did is what we called a trap value recovery program. And it's not a cost reduction exercise. It's a redeployment exercise. He took the money by either consolidating, modernizing, or eliminating systems that were no longer bringing value to the company, took those resources and budget and redeployed them against things that would add increased value. It's spectacular. I want to use, I'm going to see if I can get permission to use that, that <laughs> visual because it's a perfect example of it. And so what the, what the zone to win thing does then is so each zone has its own charter. So the productivity zone is charged with making the performance zone more efficient and more effective. Okay. By optimizing the costs of all those support functions, finances in their IT compliance, all the, all the parts of the organization that don't have a revenue bogey. The performance zone is all those operating units within the company that generate the revenues, margins, and profits that allows it to not only operate, but make new investments. And then the incubation zone is where you're looking at what the new opportunities are for the company. Are there new products? Are there new services? Are there new markets? Are there new technologies? And then finally, the transformation zone is really one of two things. It's either a zone offense zone where like Mark Benioff disrupted the old license maintenance model with software as a service. So that's called zone offense. Satya Nadella did the reverse called zone defense as he saw all three of his core businesses were under existential threat. And so he pivoted them all from on desktop, on-premise on desktop to cloud first, mobile first, and made that thing. So what it does is it allows you to look at the different aspects of your organization and be very precise about what you want to do. And to an earlier point that, that Mick made about metrics, the other problem that a lot of companies have is they adopt two or three core metrics, mostly from the performance zone. Mm -hmm. So it could be EBITDA or whatever you want. And then they take those metrics and apply them on innovation and incubation projects, and, the, and it just doesn't work. So part of it is being able to, to look at your organization and say, on the right-hand side, we're sustaining our, our business with performance. And, and productivity. And on the uh, um, left-hand side, we're disrupting or we're, it's, a, it's a discontinuous innovation because we're trying to do something new. And it really has turned out to be something that's very, very powerful because Jeffrey's great gift is that first and foremost, he's an English teacher. And so the vocabulary is very straightforward 
And it's easy to understand both on the business side and the IT side. So again, for me, it's great. And I took it and adapted it for CIOs into a four-zone model for them because it's the perfect connector between IT and business. And Mick, you got to see something, uh, these dynamics at play at the BMW plant. Uh, and that was a big aha moment for me in terms of like, what kind of outcomes do we want? Is uh, the goals for the uh, three series at BMW is very different than the i8 series. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. And I think there's someone that reflects something that, that Peter just said, which is the way, so use of the wrong metrics for measuring software innovation or delivery and so on is, I think, one of one of the things taking so many organizations astray right now. Yep. Uh, and the, the problem that I saw is that so many of the metrics are internal to the company's activities and their proxy metrics for um, you know, project completions and milestones and uh, how long it takes a developer to, to finish work and so on. They're not customer-centric metrics. And I actually think, you know, Peter, you know, potentially this is, this is actually reflected from the fact that uh, IT, most of it has come from productivity zone initiatives that were cost centers to keep the business's systems of record running. So right. if you're now adopting practices that work for the productivity zone, uh, and fail <laughs> those to be innovative, you know, obviously there's, there's a really big mismatch there. You get 85 cents for every dollar you put in. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the numbers look good. No, so, but, you know, value, you know, new value is not generated. So what I noticed uh, at the BMW plant was the way that, first of all, these concepts of horizons or zones, I really, in the book, Project to Project, I really, in terms of the, the, the four zones, uh, how profoundly those are ingrained, not just in production and the mastery of production, but in the business. So the customer centricity and the understanding of what the customer is and what the results for that customer are uh, is, was, was critical. So, the, of course, we understand BMW's performance zone because it's all very high-performance cars that, that, that uh, look good and go fast and delivers your driving pleasure. But what was so interesting to me was when I walked into this plant was that the one and two series, those, uh, those nice performance zone cars, uh, they were, their manufacturing was just on this massive scale. Uh, you know, it was every manufacturing step took only 70 seconds. The line was, I, I walked about seven miles of the line, according to my watch. Uh, and then I had this shock, which similar to the shock I had with, with Gene looking at these tombstones of uh, productivity zone things that shouldn't have, you know, that should not have existed at this point in, in, the, era, in the age of, of mobile and cloud, um, I saw the i8 line. And the i8 line was really, really short. And I just thought this was the most complex car that they had made to date and, and so on. Because the, this was you know, truly somewhere between transformation and incubation. And Peter, I love that 10% revenue mark. Um, I don't know if it works the same way in manufacturing, but it was where BMW was learning to build an electric car. Right, so it did not mm -hmm. have the same business top line requirements. The i3 was kind of in the middle, a lot of carbon fiber in it. It should probably make some money, uh, so, but <laughs> with it, so it actually had much. It had uh, the i8, thirty minute manufacturing steps made by generalists, so super short line to really learn how to manufacture electric cars. So the business result was not only the market and the customer. It had this really important internal customer of the BMW group itself learning how to make uh, electric vehicles. And 
play disruption uh, defense on that front. So unless we make this, the customer is understood by everybody because everyone making that I8 understood exactly what the goal was because of course they're, even the people doing the manufacturing are thinking about, oh, can we, how should we do this manufacturing step? How can we improve this manufacturing step? They had way more flexibility. So your, the organization is not customer centric unless the customers are defined and in any sufficiently complex business, they need to be defined somehow along these different zones because you simply have to deliver for your own internal productivity systems uh, at a very, you know, in a very different way with a very different talent pool than you need to in where, where you have to innovate in your transformation and incubation zones. And I think the biggest pitfall that I see is, is the one that you alluded to, Peter, which is using metrics from the productivity zone and sometimes the performance zone to measure all of that. Because yeah. back to the second ideal, if we're not measuring flow and how flow relates to business results along customer-centric product value streams, Again, I think it's it's just driving the wrong set of business decisions. Peter, you had mentioned something uh, very profound to me. In fact, it was one of the reasons why one of my immediate things I said was uh, I need to get us, you know, the three of us on the phone call together. And you talked about some of the maybe the disappointments around zone to win. I mean, it's clearly true and it's clearly relevant to every modern organization, but in, in many ways you shared some of the disappointments in terms of how organizations have not adopted this way of thinking and planning. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that in your own uh, uh, assessments of business and technology leaders? Yeah, it, it, as I said, I took the, 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 the core framework that Jeffrey developed and created this four-zone model, particularly for CIOs and their, and their leadership teams, to address this intersection between business and IT and see how we could get it to work better and, and more collaboratively and more productively. And I was spoiled because, my, as I said, the first CIO I worked with was Rob Carter at FedEx. He was terrific. He was a leader. He reported to Fred Smith and he sat on the senior management committee, so he had access, et cetera. But what I discovered is, and I probably talked to either individually or collectively well over a thousand CIOs in the last five years easily. And what frustrates me is the fact that well over 90% of them, for one reason or another, either don't feel they're able to or want to take <laughs> on this leadership challenge. And it, I, I mean, I believe me, I, I, I've got a lot more gray hairs than I did six years ago because I guess it's so, it's so frustrating because you say to them, look, it, you have two choices. You're running a big part of the organization. It's becoming more and more critical to the success. 80% of your resources are still allocated to maintaining what you have. And 20% to doing something new or changing the business. And, and if you talk to any CIO today, very few of them will tell you that they've made any pro me measurable progress on changing that ratio in the last five years. If I, if I had... If I had the skills, which I don't, to be a CIO, my first job would have been to flip 80-20 to 20-80. And that to me is is our is our real challenge here is to say you have to think like you have to think like a, an entrepreneur, like a line of business person, and say it doesn't make sense to spend eight out of every ten dollars on something that the company is getting very little value for. I mean, we have to have them, yes, but we don't have to spend the amount of money, time, and effort in maintaining them. And, and, and in some cases, modernizing them. And I, it's, I don't know. So I, and, and, I'm hoping the community you're introducing to me to have more of the people <laughs> that want to go do that. <laughs> and I think the, the comment I made was that the DevOps Enterprise community is uh, the set of courageous leaders uh, who are 
working tirelessly to overthrow an ancient powerful order to do what they think is right for the long-term interests of the organization. I love and it. I think, I, I'm in. Uh, I'm in. <laughs> well, and Gene, the, I think one of the reasons you love this Chris O'Malley story so much is because Peter, Chris O'Malley at CompuWare, he did flip that 80%, right? He was so aggressive working with the CIO at taking those productivity zone systems and getting them hosted in the cloud and redeploying that capital to innovation that he's a great example of the fact that even even at those scales you can change this game and, and it's not just the applications right the business processes of w which uh it enables right and yep. changing the treasury function and the uh you know uh, you know every major business process in the organization it was just astonishing to hear him present uh and talk with uh, his cfo about how they were driving complexity out of the organization and making it easier for people to do work within the business and to do business with others. <laughs> it was yep. just a, a dazzling, dazzling story. Well, Peter, so um, another thing that you, uh, that sort of, that very much startled me when you asked me uh, this one question uh, was, was, you asked me whether it was an accident that the fifth ideal came last. <laughs> I thought it was so startling because it wasn't something I really explicitly thought about. And I had relayed to you that um, it was really sort of uh, driven by I think the order of the outcomes that one sort of flowed into the other. Uh, Peter, can you describe why you asked that question, what your reaction was? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic that you put it fifth because everybody wants to put the customer first. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not against putting the customer first, but in the fact, the thing that made the story compelling to me, not just another story about, well, okay, we've got dysfunctional people doing IT and we'll find a way to make them more functional is, you know, in order for IT to truly be customer focused, they have to be able to do the first four ideals well. If they can't do those well, they can't even begin to approach to become to be customer focused. So don't put that at the head of the at the head of the tail. We'll work our way there. We'll earn our way there, and then when we're there, we will know why we deserve to be there, rather than. Well, thanks. And just to rephrase something you said, it's, uh, you know, we're on this quest to get a seat at the table, right? We all want to see at the yeah. table. And you said something so pithy. You said, until we get the first four done, we don't even belong at the table. <laughs> we, can't, we can't execute our obligations and promises until we get those four taken care of, right? Exactly. And if we're at the table, even if we have a seat, if we don't do those, we don't even have a voice at the table because all we're going to be talking about is the things we're not doing well. <laughs> but Peter, at the same rate, I think that the examples I've seen of, of this is very large organizations who task IT to transform and to transform around the customer and so on, those are, I think, are, are equally due. Because if IT does these IT for IT transformations, they don't work because the structure yep. that IT creates for itself are not around customer value streams. Yep. They're around their own internal value streams, which evolve out of these cost centers and ancient ERP systems and everything else. So, I agree 100%. So I think it's back to your original point of, of this intersection of business and technology um, uh, needs to be structured yeah. on the customer. And Peter, one of the, the pieces of advice that you uh, shared uh, with me was how you advise uh, your clients not to talk like cost centers, <laughs> which I thought was so amazing. So can you tell me more about that? Why is it wrong? And, and what does talking like a cost center sound like? Well, what I do with most of my clients is and it's a lot of fun when it's, it's a good way to make the point. So I say for the first uh, time we work together, it's usually a month or two or three months. If the phrase cost center comes out of anybody's mouth in any discussion, it costs you five bucks. Okay. 
<laughs> and by the end of the first month or two, we have we have enough money to have a pretty good pizza party. We can we can we can come pretty close to inviting the entire building. No, the point is, and it's interesting. I'm I'm thinking about doing a blog. It turns out the vocabulary is as important as technology. And if you don't talk about what you do and who you are and what you want to do in the right vocabulary, people will miss. They already have put you in a box. They put you in the cost center support function box. So if you keep coming to the board saying, here's my cost center, here's my budgets, here's my Excel spreadsheet, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, what you've done is you've given us, I'll make it up, $10 million. This is how we're going to invest it on behalf of this company in 2020. Here's our IT investment portfolio, not our IT cost center budget, our IT investment portfolio, which, by the way, okay, has been endorsed by our business partners because it's in service to the critical business outcomes that they want to achieve and that they're on the hook for this year. And it's there's a whole host of things where we go through all aspects of what IT does and just what I call change the narrative. Mick, you have some thoughts on this. I think that's the perfect mic drop. Um, that this IT mm-hmm. needs to become a, an investment portfolio. And I, you know, you know, my take on this is you've got to, that portfolio is composed of product value streams. Each of those has to have business results, whether it's the I eight and the learnings the result, or if it's the one and two series as those yep. analogies, where where revenue is the result. And you've got to measure those results from the point of view of the customer from that that customer focus. So these end-to-end flow metrics that in the end, that's the great thing about measuring things from customer point of view, is they deliver both business results and they they drive that that focus and flow and joy in your staff who want to make an impact on your customers. So I think it's that you know, switching to that investment portfolio mentality is key and using the five ideals to create the conditions that will allow your staff to thrive within that. That's awesome. All right. There's one last thing I want to talk about, uh, and that is uh, Sarah Moulton in the Phoenix Project. So uh, she was certainly one of the most polarizing characters in the Phoenix Project. Uh, She's the SVP of retail operations. And of course, she returns in the Unicorn Project. And not only does she return, she has uh, a very powerful new ally, a new board member from a private equity firm (laughs) who's very skeptical that technology can be ever be a core competency at parts unlimited. And so instead uh, he wants uh, to break up the company and sell it off to pieces, uh, optimizing for, uh, you know, a value thesis instead of a growth thesis. Um, Peter, you had shared something with me um, about your thoughts on Sarah, which I found again, incredibly provocative. Uh, Tell me about what your reactions were about uh, Sarah's ending. Well, I thought it was, as, as I, that's what I shared with you, I, I thought it was great you didn't throw her under the bus because everybody wants to throw the Sarahs under the bus because they're the, they're the enemy, if you will. They're the ones that don't want progress. They're the ones that don't think new things are worth pursuing, et cetera. You know, I think Sarah had some good motives. I think Sarah didn't really, uh, I, I guess the way I'd phrase it is she wasn't really open to alternatives that actually could have helped her get what she wanted but perhaps from a different point of view or a different perspective. Um, and I think what happens in many companies that I'm involved in is as long as you allow, as long as you treat Sarah as an adversary, she will be an adversary. Okay. So that software example I gave you earlier on where we went into the chief revenue, the chief revenue officer and the CIO were adversaries prior to <laughs> us making this change. Okay. Okay. In the FedEx example I gave you, 
the IT support teams and the business partners were adversaries before we introduced this change. So the key is, is to say, look at this. And this isn't just turning the other cheek or it's saying we have a common understanding of what we want to do. And by the way, we can do it much better together than we can fighting. And that was, you know, the punchline of the whole FedEx work we did was historically in that company over 40 years, no one, both IT and by the way, their business people went to finance separately to get funding, (laughs) not together. And in 40 years, nobody got more than 25% of what they wanted. But we came out of a two-day workshop with our business partners. We picked six projects that everybody agreed. If we only could do six, this was, and all six got funded. So it, it, it's what I liked about the fact is you just didn't discard her, but you said, look, at and, and, and they're there. And, and if you can't make it work with the Sarahs of the world, you're not going to be successful. Right. And I love that uh, you had this observation, right? We can't dismiss the Sarahs of the world. In fact, we must, uh, you know, if we can't work together with them, we are absolutely in competition with them. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a beautiful way to, to frame reality. Uh, just one little side note. Um, uh, one of my heroes, Elizabeth Hendrickson, uh, she recently uh, left Pivotal. She was there for uh, nearly a decade. Uh, you know, we were having a conversation on Sarah, and she said, yeah, what, what is Sarah's background? <laughs> and I was kind of <laughs> thunderstruck because you know, all the characters, they all have extensive kind of character backgrounds and resumes and so forth. I didn't actually have one for Sarah. <laughs> she was kind of a caricature villain. And uh, you know, I think uh, there's no doubt that she is probably an expert merchandiser. Uh, she's probably been burned by technology before. Yep. Uh, and uh, we're kind of working on, like, what does her bookshelf uh, look like? I think she's great at strategy, but not so much a people person. She's not a great leader. <laughs> her favorite book is probably uh, Who Moved My Cheese. So stay tuned for more on Sarah. Well, uh, thank you so much to uh, you both for the time today. And I'm so excited that you were both here together to share your unique perspectives with uh, everyone on this podcast. Uh, Mick and uh, then Peter, could you tell everyone how they can reach you. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. It's Mick underscore Kirsten. And just Google for Project to Product for the book and to get in touch. So. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can email me at pdmore at com. Either way. Great. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening to episode one. Up next is episode two which is the entirety of Dr. Mick Kirsten's 2019 DevOps Enterprise Summit presentation, where he talks about his 20-year journey studying developer productivity, which led him to writing his amazing book, Project to Product. I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did. The latest IT revolution news. From publishing, Agile Conversations by Douglas Squirrel and Jeffrey Frederick is coming out on May 12th. And from events, DevOps Enterprise Summit London is going virtual, same dates, Same times, same great people, same great speakers.